Welcome to Give Theory a Chance. In this episode, Dr. Michael DeLand, an assistant professor of sociology and criminology at Gonzaga University, joins us to read from Herbert Bloomer's article, Sociological Implications of the Thought of George Herbert Mead, from 1966. Mike walks us through Bloomer's reading of Mead and discusses how the article offers a starting point to understanding social construction and symbolic interaction. Thanks again for joining us, Mike. I'm glad that you're sticking around to actually work through the text and provide a little bit of a companion podcast for our other recording. So happy to be here. This will be fun. The article that you sent me, which I was quite excited about because I'd never read it before. And I don't know if, I don't know if I'm supposed to be embarrassed by saying that, but I haven't read this before. I never know what I'm supposed to have read and what I'm supposed to hide that I haven't read. Um, but you sent Sociological Implications of the Thought of George Herbert Mead. Uh, so I am curious why you chose this particular article. Yeah, the the easiest answer is I chose this because this is the one I give to my um, contemporary socio- sociological theory students. And so it's one that I, I have at hand and I, I work with a lot. Um, the truth is that Bloomer, I find like when I read through his classic symbolic interactionism book, he makes a lot of the same points in multiple places. And I find that this essay is a good kind of summation of it, that he starts the, the, um, the essay working through five concepts that he takes from George Herbert Mead. And each one is a kind of tangible nugget that students can sink their teeth into and kind of we can we can kind of work through them one by one. And it just feels like a really useful, clear pretty good length summary of some of the big takeaways of Bloomer's version of symbolic interactionism. Yeah, it's nice. I think it's, what, eight or nine pages long, which makes it really accessible. Um, yeah. I, I'm curious, do you have, so because it's Bloomer writing about Mead, do you have students read Mead first and talk about Mead and then have Bloomer's interpretation? Or is this also the way that they get introduced to Mead? Yeah, I really don't. I don't have them read Mead. And I talk about Mead a little bit and I give them a little bit of backstory. Um, but I guess the one thing I want to say about that is I don't assign this because I want them to know the ideas of Bloomer in particular, or the ideas of Mead in particular. Like for, for my undergraduate class, it's less important to me that they have the kind of intellectual history or they be able to associate the names of authors with particular ideas necessarily. I want them to get a feel for constructionism. So I organize the class around sociological metaphors. And I have this whole pitch to my students that sociologists use metaphors to make kind of theoretical claims, to tell theoretical stories. So just real quick, like the class starts with the metaphor structure. And we talk Mm -hmm. about structural functionalism. We talk about various kinds of structural critiques, whether racial or gender. Um, And you know, I, I tell them the structure is a metaphor. You can't look outside and touch social structure. So a sociologist is drawing on that metaphor to make certain kinds of claims. And so I use this Bloomer piece as a contrast to that. And I tell them, like, look for all the places where he is going to speak metaphorically using a construction metaphor, talking about building or fusing or constructing. Um, and so I just want them to get a feel for that. And I think this essay um, it really demonstrates Bloomer's brand of constructionism. That makes a lot of sense. The, the problem is when I have these conversations, every time someone presents a different model for teaching a social theory class, I apparently have no 
conviction of my own because I want to do what other people say. <laughs> so but I'm, not, I'm not actually going to change my course every single time, but I like right. that that setup makes a lot of sense to me. Cool. Thanks. I think, you know, that just reminds me that our, our students are the same way. They read Marx and they become Marxists. They read Weber, they become Weberians. And so, um, just as a reminder that there's a lot of, there's a lot of truth yeah. out there. In yeah. We're easily, we're easily swayed some. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So as you were saying that the, the article introduces these, these five central concepts, the self, the act, social interaction, objects, and joint action. And I know you've chosen some quotes from, or a quote from each of the sections. So the first one that Bloomer leads us into is the idea of the self. So uh, would you be willing to read the quote? And for people following along, I will share the article, a PDF of the article, so you can always download and, and work through it while you listen to Mike talk uh, and help us understand what's going on. And so you're going to start with a quote from page 535. Sure. So this is at the top of the second column on 535. The possession of a self converts the human being into a special kind of actor, transforms his relation to the world, and gives his action a unique character. In asserting that the human being has a self, Mead simply meant that the human being is an object to himself. The human being may perceive himself, have conceptions of himself, communicate with himself, and act toward himself. And when I read that piece, I, I immediately start thinking about, like, what is a sociological model of a human being? And Bloomer through Mead provides a pretty clear one that what's distinctive about a human being, a human individual, is that we're constantly in the process of self-interaction, of looking around the world around us, interacting with ourselves, telling ourselves things. And human beings um, distinctively are able to do that at a very um, kind of nuanced level um, compared to, say, plants or animals or other kinds of beings around us. Okay, so we're already getting some some key words or ideas introduced. I know object is one of those things. This idea of an object to himself is something that you hear over and over in sociology and social psychology. The, the one that interests me, though, is this idea of, let's see, he says, he transforms his relationship to the world and gives his action a unique character. I'm curious what that means, unique. Yeah, I think I think what he's saying is that um, human activity has a unique character in that it involves this kind of self-interaction. So as opposed to, and he'll get into this more in another section, as opposed to action being a release or a kind of um, an, an outcome of some pre-established organization, um, human beings are constructing, organizing, building their conduct as they indicate things to themselves. Um, oh, okay, that makes perfect sense, yeah. The example I give to students or ask them to give me examples is like that moment when you're by yourself in the morning looking in your closet for something to wear. Um, you're not, you're not pre-designed to choose one shirt or one dress over the other. You're making indications to yourself about who do I want to be today? Um, and that's going to depend on where I'm going to go and who I'm going to see. And so already, as I look at each of these shirts, I'm telling myself, like, is that the right mic that I want to be when I walk into class today? Is that the person I want to be in the hallways? Is that the person I want to be when I step into a colleague's office? And so even though those people are not co-present with me, there's a certain way in which I'm already interacting with them. 
Okay, I like that. When you're saying, "Is that the is that the mic that I want to be?" That's the that is the example of being an object to yourself, right? Right. I'm already okay. imagining myself from others' standpoints. I do find that the self is one of those concepts, whether it's coming from me or coming from Bloomer, that once you work through it, students kind of get and make some sort of intuitive sense. Um, so let's go to the next one. Let's go to the act, which I believe is on page 536. 536. First sentences after the heading, the act. So human action requires a radically different character as a result of being formed through a process of self-interaction. So he's about to kind of play out the implications of like, how does it matter for our understanding of action that human beings have a self? Action is built up in coping with the world instead of merely being released from a pre-existing psychological structure by factors playing on that structure. So that's a, that sentence has a lot in it. <laughs> that, yeah. that second one, it, it has the, you already mentioned the idea of action or something not being just merely released. It brings in this idea of structure. Help us understand what's going on with that sentence. I think what he wants to be able to say is that it's through our interact it's through our actions that we build a social reality so our our actions themselves are kind of the building blocks of society um and so human beings are not he wants to avoid a really kind of passive model of a human being where we've got human beings who are just kind of reacting to factors playing on them so you know, the structure metaphor really brings your mind to like, okay, there's something bigger out there over and above me that exists before me that is pushing me, that is pressing me Mm -hmm. to do this or that. Um, Bloomer would call that conception of action, like that action is just being released, that the individual is just being pushed and nudged and prompt to move in different directions. I see. So by release, he means the structure is the cause, the action, the individual acting is purely the effect and that it's okay. So it's just that one direction arrow. I see. Exactly. And I think, um, I think what he wants to be able to say is that like, you know, in the classic kind of structure versus agency debate, um, human beings have more agency because we have selves. We're making indications to ourselves. That's an ongoing process. And as we indicate things to ourselves, we're building up lines of action. I see. So going back to that closet example, when you're looking at potential outfits and you're choosing how you're going to present yourself, it's not just it's not just the release that uh, social structure saying this is how you have to dress today. But there's something going on in that process of saying, what what mic do you want to be? Right. That. Okay. You know, the structure might a more structural model would say, like, we have norms that come from kind of structures and cultures that like establish norms. And to the extent that we um, are part of that structure, the norms tell us like, OK, I'm going to class today. I should wear a collar. Um, and Bloomer says that's not really a model of social action that um, that fits with human life, social life, that we, um, even if I think I should wear a collar, I might put on a backwards hat or maybe I'm going to get an earring or like I have a lot of agency to um, construct myself through my actions, even as I nod to pre-existing norms or ideas or values. Okay. All right. So we have a sense of what the self is we have a sense of the act 
And then it gets even more complicated as we move to social interaction, uh, which, I mean, all of these are such fundamental concepts. So I was about to say this is an important one, but there's only five and they're all <laughs> yeah. probably, they're all important. Yeah, right. Um, so what do we make of social interaction? And this is on 537. Yeah, so I'm at the bottom of 537, top of 538 now. And Bloomer writes, um, symbolic interaction involves interpretation or ascertaining the meaning of the actions or remarks of the other person and definition or conveying indications to another person as to how he is to act. Human association consists of a process of such interpretation and definition. Through this process, the participants fit their own acts to the ongoing acts of one another and guide others in doing so. And I guess I'm, I'll, I'll go back to that, the kind of construction metaphor that we fit our acts together. I mean, that sounds like the fusing of two like pieces of wood in a construction process as we build up some larger spate of social activity. Um, and so now it's not just, of course, the action of one person choosing a shirt, but it's actually the mutually responsive, co-present interactions of two or, or maybe more individuals as each is indicating to themselves, because they have a self, the meaning of what the other person is doing, trying to make sense, trying to make meaning together. Yeah, and, it's, and it seems like, so for that, the last part of what you read is interesting. Through this process, the participants fit their own acts to the ongoing acts of one another and guide others in doing so. So it's as you, as you engage in that relationship and interpret other people, interpret what other people are doing and act, you're also giving clues for the other person of how to act in that situation that's built, kind of mutually building up. Is that right? Nice, yeah. And um here I sometimes um, tell students of a phrase from Mead that I always remember, which is that we're constantly finding out what we're going to say. And that's like such poetic language, but, you know, it makes me think of um, I'm walking down the hallway in my department and I'm going to go say hi to a colleague in their office and I walk in and I don't know what it is I'm walking into yet. Um, I may think like maybe we'll talk about the game last night or maybe we'll talk about the classes coming up or maybe I'm going to walk in and see a student in the midst of a very emotional interaction. I'm going to immediately be interpreting what is this scene that I've walked into and how do I need to organize my conduct in response to indicate to them that I understand what kind of scene this is. And they may see me walk in and do the very same thing, giving me indications that actually this is an emotional moment. Maybe it's not the right time to talk. So we're both going to be reading one another's behaviors for the meaning it has and hopefully constructing some common understanding of how to fit our lines of action together. I like that example. And I do find this might be redundant from what we've already said. But with both Mead and Bloomer, it's a type of reading where you might not get when you're doing it by yourself. But as soon as you start to hear those examples, it kind of clicks, right? Like there's, some, there's something already there. Um, so we've got the self, we've got the act, we've got social interaction. Let's go on to objects. So I think this is page 539. We're on the right side. And, and I really like this quote. So yeah, this is one of my favorite quotes from Bloomer. And it's one that I carry with me often. So he says on the right-hand column, Readiness to use a chair as something in which to sit gives it the meaning of a chair. To one with no experience with the use of chairs, the object would appear with a different meaning, such as a strange weapon. It follows that objects vary in their meaning. A tree is not the same object to a lumberman, a botanist, or a poet. Um, and I guess here, 
I, I feel like that sentence, that little set of sentences is such a clear articulation of what it is to live in a socially constructed reality that we think that a tree is just a tree is just a tree. Um, and it may well have some kind of independent um, biological reality out there. But for Bloomer, as part of the social world, the tree is a constructed object. And it depends what our practical purpose is with it. And it depends how we interact with one another in reference to the tree. And so it's not just that a lumberman thinks of a tree in a particular way because he or she is essentially a lumberman. It's because the lumberman is anticipating interactions with fellow lumbermen who will expect him to have interacted with the tree in an appropriate way. If the lumberman, and now we get into kind of absurdist examples, but if the lumberman was to pause and stare at the tree and start contemplating the meaning of life or the play of shadows on the leaves like a poet might, um, his fellow lumbermen are going to think he's crazy or are going to somehow marginalize him or fire him potentially. So his interactions with other people are part of the production of what the tree is. I do find it interesting how often with these examples, theorists, uh, <laughs> I'm just thinking of how, you know, if you, if you had no experience with a chair, it would appear uh, to be a strange weapon. So often we associate with people's immediate assumptions that every object is a weapon if they don't, <laughs> if they don't know what it is. <laughs> I've yeah. noticed that pattern over and over in philosophy and theory. The example is always, well, if you don't know what it is, it has to be a weapon. <laughs> <laughs> like what kind of thing could this be used for if not a chair? Yeah. Maybe I'll break it on somebody's back. Yeah, um, that's, a, that's always the interpretation. So it's the social construction that gives you meaning beyond weapon. <laughs> yeah. So the, the other thing I really like about this reading, and this is also true of meat as well, is the way that there's very digestible little blocks that you can start to build on top of each other and see the argument emerge. And each of them makes some sort of sense, especially once you know the, the one that was uh, previous in the reading. Right. Yeah. You, you, you often need to give tangible examples for them to sink their teeth into. But I think once yeah. we start doing that, they can kind of, they, they start seeing the world around them in, in a more luminous way. They see how, oh, this interaction didn't have to go that way. Or the thing that I took for granted before is actually like a contingent product of how we treat it. Um, and that can be a really moment of um, kind of intellectual um, growth, I think. All right, so the, the fine, I believe it's the final term, right? Joint action. Uh, that's where we see Bloomer choose a different term than Mead uses. So he starts off by saying he's using the term joint action in the place of Mead's term social act. So what is, what is joint action? Let's, I know you have a quote at the bottom of the first column of page 540 that goes into the, through to the top right column. Bloomer writes, Joint actions range from a simple collaboration of two individuals to a complex alignment of the acts of huge organizations or institutions. Everywhere we look in a human society, we see people engaging in forms of joint action. Indeed, the totality of such instances, in all of their multitudinous variety, their variable connections, and their complex networks, constitutes the life of society. And so I think what he's articulating with the joint action concept is a way of like, okay, I've been talking about relatively micro everyday moments. Yeah. But if you take, say, social interaction or the act um, 
um, from people who have selves as the kind of sociological atom, then that those things build up and become these elaborate um, collective endeavors um, that he's calling joint action, as many, many people fit together their lines of behavior into something much bigger than what any of them could could fathom. And so we talk about how like a university is a joint action. It involves lots of people arriving to work each day, anticipating who they need to be in relation to the people they're going to be interacting with. And the collaborative building of all of those lines of action is what the university is. Um, there is no kind of independent ontological existence of the university outside of the collective work of each to fit their acts together into, into the whole. Um, maybe I'll just give one more kind of tangible example. That yeah, I, I think so. Cause I, I think this is the one that is probably the biggest jump for people reading it, right? All the other ones, once you have that example in your head, it's very simple. You can think of these, but when we have this idea of the institution being a collect a collection of these things, then it starts to get more abstract. So yeah, another example would be great. Yeah, and maybe my other example that's in my mind right now is kind of back to a more everyday scene. But That's useful. Uh, so I'm thinking of like a, a, a collection of, I don't know, eighth graders who... Um, all want to go to a bowling alley together. And um, maybe there's young men and there's young women. Um, and there might be some um, confusion um, beforehand of whether this is a group date or whether this is a group hangout. And it's not, uh, you know, nobody necessarily just comes out and says, like, let's all go on a kind of uh, triple date together. Um, they say, let's go as a group to the bowling alley. And then people are collaboratively making indications to themselves and to one another's about like, what kind of occasion is this? Is this a date or is this just a hangout? And so one party might like want it to be a date. And so invites another party, like, let's go walk over to the arcade together or like, let's be on the same bowling team. And others take that as a sign that like, oh, this person thinks it's a date. Um, other people may be, no, 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 I don't want this to be a date. I want this to be a hangout and organize their conduct very differently. And at the end of the day or the end of the night, they're all going to look back and try to think to themselves, was that a date or was that a hangout? And different parties might come away with different understandings, but it's going to be based on the fusing together of different lines of action as they collectively make sense of what this occasion was. Okay, so we have one more quote, which is on page 543. And I'm glad you chose to include this quote at the end rather than simply concluding the podcast with his definition of, of joint action. Because I think personally, one of the things that happens when I present Mead to the class or when I work through reading like this is there's still that question of what it means to take seriously these ideas. How does it, how does it change what we do as sociologists or, or how is this a statement about the discipline? And like you pointed out in the other podcast we recorded, Bloomer is not one that a uh, person who shies away from that, right? He'll take on the rest of the discipline quite directly and say, this is, this is why you should follow my views. Yeah. And it maybe is important to, to set it up just slightly to say that by this time, he started to contrast Mead's approach and his own approach to something more structural, to something where norms or values or attitudes are given to us by something called social structure and kind of in some way prompt us or predetermine us 
to act in certain directions. And Bloomer is going to say um, on the first full paragraph on 543, Mead's scheme definitely challenges this conception. It sees human society not as an established structure, but as people meeting the conditions of their life. It sees social action not as an emanation of societal structure, but as a formation made by human actors. It sees this formation of action not as, a, as societal factors coming to expression through the medium of human organisms, but as constructions made of actors out of what they take into account. It sees group life not as a release or expression of established structure, but as a process of building up joint actions. And so in each case, I mean, he goes on from there, but in each case, it's like um, structure is, it's a little too static. It's a little too noun-like. It kind of pre-exists the everyday realities of, of human beings making sense of um, their context and trying to fit themselves into their context. It treats human action as an emanation, as a kind of independent variable, as a as a potentially inevitable or just a probabilistic outcome of something that pre-existed them. And I think he's always going to say that the unique task of sociology is to get close to and wrestle with the social processes, the human social processes through which our reality is built. And so he's, he's not denying, as we saw in the previous section, that there are these institutions that are constructed and then have what seems to be greater stability and power, but it's just that they're the accumulation of all these joint actions. And then he still wants us to focus on what people do within that context. Is that, is that right? Yeah. I think he just thinks that like, that a concept like structure or a concept like power are abstractions Mm -hmm. from the human goings on that give those things significance, that make those things real. And so we should start from getting, we should start by getting close to the goings on. We should start by getting close to people as they are managing um, the, the world in which they live as, as they themselves understand it and not sort of from the outset of our sociological work impose um, something called structure um, and, and suggest that it pre-exists the operations of human beings. But once you start thinking in that way, I think it can become a kind of back and forth relationship. It's like, you know, a university is a stable thing. It exists there in an ongoing way. And I for sure have to reckon with that as I organize my lines of action. Um, It's just that we should also remember that the, the institution, the university is made of other people doing the same thing. He has a quote, right? across the column. So you ended on the left side of 543. On the right-hand side, he has a quote that I really like that I noticed while you were reading that, where he says, social interaction is obviously an interaction between people and not between roles. The needs of the participants are to interpret and handle what confronts them, such as a topic of conversation or a problem, and not to give expression to their roles. I feel like that perfectly captures the difference of Bloomer um, as he's reading Mead, but as he's putting forth his view of the field to some other examples of what we even associate with being symbolic inter- symbolic interaction, right? Prioritize how people are making sense of the world and their active interpretation. Yeah, and it's a, it's a like I, I was saying, it's another example of Bloomer drawing really clear distinctions between the way that he wants to work and the way he wants to advocate for and the way others work. And um, I don't think you have to 
to fully agree with him for this to be a useful intellectual exercise and to kind of articulate, well, here's where Bloomer's um, version of sociology falls short, and here's where I, I love it. This is one of those readings that so clearly illustrates how theory and methods need to be combined to some degree. They're not these mutually exclusive classes that you take or, or, or things that are explored within sociology. They directly lead to each other. And this is, you can read it just as much as a method as, as being a methods piece. Oh, right? 100%. And, yeah. yeah. It's, so I really, um, I appreciate it for that reason. Yeah. He's kind of saying, you know, what is the social world made of? What is its kind of essence? And if we understand it this way, what do we have to describe? And then it, it, it immediately becomes a methodological question. All right, that seems like a, a great place to end it, unless you've got some final thoughts to add. But I, I think that was a, a very useful discussion for me, and I'm hoping to use this piece next time I teach theory or, or if I teach an advanced qualitative course. That's awesome. I think I'll let it stand there, Kyle. Thanks so much. Okay, perfect. Appreciation goes to Jeffrey Gilbert for providing theme music, SUNY Brockport for providing financial support, and most importantly, on behalf of me, Kyle Green, Thank you for giving theory a chance.